health challenges, notably substance use and mental health, are more prevalent than ever, but the workforce is shrinking even as the need for equitable services grows. How do we get here? How can we turn the tide? And how can we incorporate social justice into those efforts? We'll address all of these questions in this podcast mini-series. I'm Eric Tischler from Aptos Associates, and joining me today are my colleague, Lizanne Brown, and our guest, Karis Myrick. For years, Karis has held some of the highest-level positions in the world of mental health peer support, including Chief of Peer and Allied Mental Health Professions for the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health. Today, she's director of the JED Foundation and co-director of S2I, the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative at the JED Foundation. Lizanne has more than 20 years of experience in public health evaluation and research, and her areas of expertise include maternal and child health, healthcare access, and the integration of primary care and behavioral health. Welcome. Thank you. Thrilled to be here, Eric. Karis, if you could help me set the table here, what's the role of peer and community-based leadership as part of the behavioral health workforce, and why is it important? Um, you know, this is really such a great question. So a couple of things I want to do first is define the word peer, because it's a word that's used a lot in the behavioral health field, and it can have lots of different meanings. So um, when we're talking about peers, sometimes we're talking about what used to be called consumers or people with lived experience who are the actual recipients of service. Um, we can also be talking about capital P peer, I'll put it that way, um, where we're really talking about peer workforce or certified peer specialist recovery coaches. Those are folks with lived experience of a mental health condition or a substance use condition or both who are actually um, trained to provide uh, support to other in the workforce. So your question is really almost two or threefold <laughs> around what is the role of peer and community-based leadership um, in the behavioral health workforce. So I think there are a lot of different roles. One is um, uh, they can be people who are providing services um, as um, providers or supervisors of those providers. Um, they can also be um, folks who are in administrative roles um, <clears throat> in um, either uh you know, like for me, for example, when I worked for the L.A. County Department of Mental Health, I was the chief of peer and allied health professions. And basically what that means is that there were um, five different chiefs of the providers or disciplines, if you will. We're called discipline chiefs, but that sounds like you're whipping people, which we were now. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Yeah, just to clarify, there uh, were five different uh, disciplines um, that many of them we know already, psychology, psychiatry, nursing, social work, and then I was the fifth discipline, just like you would think of the fifth dimension, um, and um, which was for the peer workforce and allied health professionals, which are promotora, community health workers, and any roles in which... Um, uh, people do not have a license uh, to practice, but may have some training and or certification. So leadership is really important because, um, you know, for those of us who were service recipients, we see those services from the, wow, I received that services end. And then when we moved into leadership positions, we see, well, gee, that's how the system works or maybe doesn't work. And so we become a really important informant in a leadership role to help the um, uh, behavioral health system actually be much more responsive to the actual people that they're serving. And to think about stuff like access and like, what is access? What does that mean? I'm going into all sorts of stuff, but you can see why leadership is super important. Great. And uh, Lizanne, you want to weigh in on that and your take on that admittedly broad question? Uh, you know, I think a lot of behavioral health um, clinical staff have a lot of challenges understanding 
you know, I think the differences between, I think, the, the little P and the big P and how to um, integrate those staff um, into their services, because I don't think they really understand either. Yeah, I think um, a lot of times it's like, um, you know, bringing in a, you know, new role into your treatment team, let's put it that way. Um, and if you don't understand what that person is supposed to be doing or how they're supposed to be doing it, how do you support them really doing their role according to their scope of practice? So I think this is another reason why, um, you know, peer and um, other types of leadership are really important <clears throat> because we can help our um, um, behavioral health treatment teams have a better understanding of the work that we do, how we do it. Um, and if we do it according to our scope of practice, we can actually get um, the outcomes that the evidence says that we can obtain. <clears throat> so when we do things like training, if we have uh, people who are running the Office of Consumer and Peer Affairs, if you will, um, um, we can always help our, our providers in that way. Now I'm losing my voice, so hold on. Okay. Well, I, I, here I can chime in for a minute while you grab a sip of water. <laughs> um, Hydrate. So we've learned from um, uh, some studies in HIV clinic settings that providers um, don't fully understand uh, how best to integrate um, uh, allied health staff to improve the services for their patients. There's a real opportunity to uh, improve recovery efforts, um, following uh, outside of the clinic setting um, to ensure that people, um, their overall wellness um, over time outside of the clinic setting. Maybe to give an example, uh, and I'll use LACDMH as one of the examples, but I do, I, I can do this, uh, support people in other realms too, is um, looking at things like grand rounds. That might be like even a first step of an example to train on, well, what is a peer? What is a community health worker? What is their scope of practice? What kind of services do they provide within the clinic setting? And um, also there may be community-based settings, there may be prevention work. And how does that intermix with the um, entire team and or with the role that you're providing, for example, as a psychiatrist. Sometimes when, um, you know, we're trying to implement new work, such as um, um, integrating technology into um, the space of mental health, that can include telehealth as well as using any other kind of digital therapeutics, partnering up peers and the provider force to figure out how are we going to actually um, um, implement this new way of providing um, services and supports um, into our system of care. So that is another way that I will say like licensed providers can have a better understanding of the role of peers, not as the not only as the provider or supporter who may be supporting the person in understanding how to use the technology, um, helping them set up an email account, you know, some very basic stuff, but they also hear how the people they're serving actually use technology, understand the services they're receiving, understand like, well, that guy can never show up. I just think they're actually being non-compliant. And the peer will say, well, actually, you know, I had to help that guy actually get the bus tokens. He's not showing up because he can't get on the bus to get here. Um, but that may not come out in a natural conversation, but it may come out more naturally with the peer who's sort of been there and done that. 
So I think that's um, ways in which we can um, utilize the peer workforce, not just to do the work of providing the support and service, but also to help inform how those services are actually provided within the mental health setting and also within the community at large. I know we have challenges building that um, peer workforce. You, you, you want to address what's going on there, um, what we might be able to do to to build that workforce? I think there are a couple of different things to think about within sort of, you know, when we think of workforce at large, we think of counting widgets and the number of kind of like, how many psychiatrists do we need? How many psychologists do we need, et cetera. And peer workforce is sort of new, new to this kind of equation. So at least in my mind, the first thing we pro- that I would think of is um, first, probably not counting the widgets, but looking at sort of what kind of collaborative care and team is needed to support people. Um, and um, doing that in a way that everybody is operating within their scope of practice. So I think right now, especially when we look at public mental health, we'll see a lot of people doing things that are probably not within their scope of practice, but maybe in the scope of practice of somebody completely different. So how can we count widgets and know if those widgets are even right? So I think first kind of backing up into kind of who do we need where and, and, and how um, um, should they be deployed is one thing to look at. And when we look at the peer workforce, I think, again, it's fairly new. There are um, 48 states that have um, uh, uh, have met the CMS um, guidance for having a statewide peer certification. And I think understanding what is the role of the peer um, you know, really trusting that we have enough evidence about the outcomes um, from um, peer support or peer services that are provided. There's plenty of evidence. Um, is it quote unquote gold standard um, evidence based practice kind of thing? Um, in some areas, yes, and in some areas, no. Um, I would say that uh, for some things that we're doing, it is definitely an emerging practice. We don't have the funding to go get a gold standard, you know, uh, you know, evidence-based kind of uh, uh, research. And I think the other the other issue is um, funding. Who's going to pay for it, and how is it going to get paid for? Um, and the rates are variable across the country. The Medicaid reimbursement rates for uh, peer services, they're variable. And if a person can't make a living being a peer provider at a low rate, will probably mean there's a lower wage, then um, it may not be something that somebody with lived experience might do. They might actually go into something completely different where they're making more money either in the service array or in a, um, a more like supportive um, position. Um is there stigma? Yes. Is there discrimination? Yes. Um, and I think those are things that we also have to address. So, um, and I like to think of it this way. Um, so let's take a very large system. Let's say there are 8,000 people working in a large mental health system, just looking at a mental health system. If there are 8,000 people and we know that one in five or one in four people are affected by a mental health condition sometimes in their life, I ask people just to do the math. Um, and um, just by the mere fact of the math, do not count your peers, take them out of the equation, you probably already have people who are working within the system who have a mental health and or behavioral health condition. They're just not out about it. More than likely, they're using it, thinking about what happened with them, to them, while they were receiving services, and so how they may address someone, how they may answer the phone, how they may look at a, at a resume, well, may be impacted by that very lived experience that they have, though they're not out about it. So um, if we do the math, 
and recognize that we probably already have people working with us who have a mental health and or a substance use condition. The idea of there being some kind of stigma or discrimination about increasing that number doesn't really make any sense to me. So <laughs> I like to kind of back into it that way so that people can see this is not an oddity. This isn't like, oh, we've never had them before. Had people with lived experience working with you all along. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a real opportunity to, um, in addition to um, think about expanding the, the role of peers, is to is training for um, clinicians and providers to become more familiar um, with social disparities that impact the population, and and you know really understand that that there may be um, staff within their existing um, uh, practice in their in their existing. Uh, system, just as Karis was mentioning, that may, you know, they already have the assets um, internally and just may not be aware of them. Um, but I think some, uh, some, uh, you know, in, uh, internal education may also, and training um, uh, may also help the situation. Yeah, I think um, there's actually some new work um, being done in many of the professions around adding a competency of structural competencies. So a lot of times we hear about um, cultural competency, but we don't hear much about structural competency. And structural competency gets right at some of those issues you're talking about, which is really um, understanding and then addressing some of the structures that inhibits people being able to fully move forward in their wellness. We can make people feel better. We can, um, you know, provide people all sorts of, uh, you know, medications, tools, resources, and supports. But if they're continuing to struggle with the very structures that are causing the trauma and or distress, then it's kind of like this cycle. And um, I, I like the work, for example, that Dr. Um, Stephanie Lamel is doing in New York, which is in her residential program. Um, she has her residents, are, um, these are psychiatrists, she's a psychiatrist. She has her um, psych residents actually pair up with a peer and spend a day with them. So that number one, they could see the role of the peer um, and see exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, they can also um, spend the day um, with the peer providing um, support to a um, person who's receiving services and the resident walks the kind of walk of alongside that person. So if the person has to take the bus to get somewhere or public transportation, so does the resident. If the person only has, you know, two bucks a week to spend on food, so does the resident. So it becomes a really powerful um, in vivo kind of real life experience for the residents to under, have a better understanding of the role of the peer and also the life of the, the people that they're serving. Um, I think Yale has a similar program, and I would love to see, um, you know, in the peer workforce, we look at um, issues of structural competencies. One of our competencies is um, to be advocates. So there's a self-advocacy and system advocacy but we think a lot of times the system advocacy is on the system itself versus on the multitudes of systems that um, impact a person's life. If you think of like social determinants of health and the different systems that are there. Um, the other thing um, that I think would be um, that, that is done, I mean, you know, a lot of us do this is, you know, we'll, we'll do trainings at um, the national conventions of the different um, um, uh, a licensed providers, American Psychiatric Association, American um, um, Psychological Association, 
Point being is that we will join up with um, psychiatrists, psychologists, nurses, and social workers and provide training at these um, national conferences where a lot of the professions get their CEUs. So we become, or CME, so we become a part of that training force, um, you know, right where people are kind of entering entering in and trying to get uh, 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 more information about you know, the, the services they provide do their CME and CEU um, um, obligations. So, Lisa, anything that? Well, uh, I think the social determinants of health framework is, is very relevant here um, coming from, you know, public health perspective. Um, you know, a lot of public health professionals don't fully understand the scope of what uh, people are, you know, individuals are facing um, and how important it is to um, have uh, peers to help uh, navigate um, all of the different challenges in their lives, whether it's from transportation, um, food access, and there's so many different um, uh, factors um, and, and different uh, needs that people may have that uh, someone with, with a lived experience can really help uh, inform from a, from a structural level. I think there's one other thing when you when you say that that I, I I'd love to bring up and that's this I I think also there's a disconnect between mental illness and serious mental illness which used to be serious and persistent mental illness so um, and so when people say you know, and people still say serious and persistent mental illness and then talk about recovery which is always interesting to me it feels a little oxymoronic unless you're persistently recovering which we want um, but this idea of persistent illness as in somebody is always ill um, meaning always <laughs> symptomatic it's gonna say systematic um, so I I, I think sometimes what happens is when we um, language is super duper important, um, and so when we when we talk about um, serious mental illness, there's this othering that happens. It's like no, you don't have that mental illness over there. That's the okay kind. You have this over here, and well, you know that's just ridiculously serious. Like we really gotta like double down on that sucker. And so the way that I, I think that that then kind of turns around into um, um, the belief about people being able to um, recover fully, meaning um, when you look at social determinants of health, for example, or living full lives in the community, um, there's a limit. And it's like, it's like there's a belief that you know, there's this limit because you have a serious mental illness and people treat to that limit. And so when people are treating to that limit, then actually um, folks who are receiving some of those services actually meet that expectation. It's like a Pygmalion effect kind of thing. Um, and so if you're kind of treating to the limit and people only reach that limit, it's like, well, see, that's serious mental illness. It's really hard for us to think about people going beyond that. And so I like to kind of reframe it. I, I know I can't get rid of serious mental illness. It, it has it, it's a, sort of a concept uh, to help with understanding who's going to be in public health and not, and who's going to who's going to pay for things. And I understand that as a construct. So um, I think when we're thinking about sort of public and public health approaches and the roles of you know our providers and peers and community health workers. You know, thinking about what do we do when someone's um, mental health condition is at its most serious. So that's the continuum, and that it's not always there, but at times it can be there. 
What are we doing when it's not there? What are we doing, again, sort of in a prevention so it doesn't get there? And that's sort of all sorts of different ways of um, thinking and reconceptualizing serious mental illness as sort of this continuum of waxing and waning and providing people um, you know, the supports that they need, the treatment that they need, no matter where they are in that continuum, um, as well as um, um, holding, I say, holding the expectations, the sky is the limit, and people get to tell us where their sky is, and then we need to support them to reach that sky. So, Well, that seems like a good segue to ask you about your comment that access is about too many people in the system without a way out. Um, yeah, very interesting about access. This is another one of those when you're kind of in the system and you kind of see how how the system treats you from a, from the quote unquote consumer peer lived experience lens. Um, access starts to be uh, very different when you then start to work from the system kind of end, and that does have a lot to do with this idea of well. Um, you know, is access really about getting in the system or is access about helping people move through and out of the, especially the public mental health system? This does not mean that people are not still getting, um, you know, treatment and supports as they need, um, but not to the expectation such that when you have a serious mental illness, you must be in public mental health, you know, forever and a day. You will always be on medication. You will never live a life um, fully. You won't go to work. You won't, I mean, I'm sorry. Those are all the things that I and many of... Um, my peers were told, um, especially when given a diagnosis of a serious mental health condition, um, I was definitely told, you know, well, you won't go to work, you won't finish school, um, you'll always live in some kind of congregate care or with your family. Um, and, and it was sort of like this weird death sentence. And even though we talk a lot about recovery now, a lot of people are still getting that same message. And it starts off, well, you know, you have a serious mental illness. You know, I don't mean, you know, people are shaking their heads, their eyes are squinting, and they're kind of making that serious face like, oh my gosh. Um, and so when we treat people that way, we hold people in the system, and the system can only hold but so many people. So how are people going to get in if we don't have the belief that people can flourish and come out of the system and move it on in their lives. And, um, you know, and again, some people may need longer care than others. You know, I, we can't predict that, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, I think kind of how do we help people move in and through and out? And if they need to come back into the public system, making that an easy entree point. It's not easy. I mean, it's just not easy to get in if you're trying to get things like, um, uh, you know, to get on, uh, you know, uh, uh, disability and things like that. It's, it's not an easy thing for people, especially if you're not doing well. So I think there are two points of it is what can we be doing more on the prevention end, on the community end? Um, there's a lot more that we could be doing to support people in the community, where they are, how they might receive services if they're afraid even to access so there are things like barbershop projects, especially in communities of color, um, where, where barbers are actually trained almost like peers. Some of them do have lived experience, so some of them don't. But definitely there are community workers who can support um, the person who's coming to the barbershop or the beauty salon. Um, if you're an African-American, you know, you just don't go get your hair done and you're gone. That is like an all day serious affair. You're hanging out there. You're talking to people. You're talking to the beautician. You're talking to the barber. And usually you're telling them or talking to them um, about your life, kind of like Imagine Cheers 
no alcohol, but a bunch of barber chairs, hair sinks, and shampoo. That's what's happening there. Um, and it's just a super way to, and you're hearing that they're struggling, but as a barber, you might not know what to do. So there, there are projects like the Confess Project in which barbers are trained to be able to have these conversations in the ways that culturally align to support people either in the moment or help refer them. Um, I have a, a, a peer here in Los Angeles, and he's come up with this great, he's a barber. So he's like, yeah, they come here all the time, and they send the, pe- the person who's talking on the street, they send them to me as I'm cutting hair. And what he really wants to do is take that Confess Project idea and move it up a notch. What would happen if we had a social worker or a, um, a psychologist available right there? Don't make them go to the mental health center. Like they're already there. They're they're live and ready to go, right? You you talk to them about kind of what it means to live with a um, mental health issue, to get treatment and supports, and they want to know more and they really want to engage. Why do we have to send them away to you know wait for an appointment? How cool of an idea to have somebody there, um, you know, either adjacent to the barbershop in the barbershop in a you know, appropriate setting. Again, I don't know how the billing of all of that would work, but I think it's a fabulous idea of being able to meet people where they are and create new access points that are not just this is the door in and this is the door out. This is is such an important point about trying to meet people where they are. And we've had success in other, you know, types of programs with HIV using, you know, barbershops to, um, you know, for condom distribution and different, you know, different information about other public health programs. And this absolutely, you know, needs to be extended um, to, uh, you know, overall wellness and providing, you know, people in the community, such as barbers or or others, um, think of beauty salons also, we could think of other venues where we could really um, bring uh, information, um, churches also. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of opportunity for this kind of community-based prevention and, and as Karis was saying, really meet people where they are and not wait till they're in crisis. Things that I could just state there, especially as we look at sort of the headlines around COVID and this expected, you know, tsunami of mental health, as people are saying, and, um, you know, understanding that also from a trauma lens and ensuring people understand trauma and trauma-informed care, and that sometimes, you know, um, and, and I look um, 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 at the at uh, uh, Japan and, and what happened in the tsunami, and their understanding of the needs of uh, what would happen. Uh, during, after, post, 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 having such a traumatic event happen in March of 2011 with the tsunami um, and the support that they're providing people um, throughout this entire time. Um, And, you know, they never talk about it from a mental health perspective, meaning mental illness, but they do talk about it from a trauma perspective and the various um, community supports that are available to people. Um, So I think Sometimes, you know, we can look at what's uh, happening um, as far as when you say, well, who's the workforce or where the support's going to be? I think we do need to think about all of the various community supports for people. I mean, I'm thinking about all the grocery store uh, folks who have had to remain open. Um, and during this entire time, that was considered essential. And so what kind of um, emotional health and well-being are we providing? Um, or what kind of support are we providing to maintain their emotional health and well-being during this time of the pandemic when they and other essential workers have been uh, available to us? Is it 
where and how they can receive it. So I think it's not only about who is the workforce and who are these community members, but how is that being provided? Of course, we know teletherapy, you know, we have, um, you know, a gazillion apps out there. There are more than 100, uh, more than 10,000 um, quote-unquote wellness apps or apps that focus on mental illness during the pandemic. We don't know how many are out there. A lot of them are not regulated. So you have to be a little bit careful about that. But I think, you know, when we think about things like phone lines, text lines, um, you know, uh, uh, you know what can be available to people in the grocery store at the grocery store, and it might be you know a group of grocery store workers. So I think we can be very creative, and this is where funding is probably going to be really essential, and why I like the job that I'm doing now with the Mental Health Strategic Impact Initiative is we're looking at okay, but what is the role of philanthropy, um, and how can philanthropy kind of help us in looking at some of these. I would say most of them are pretty intractable mental health system issues um, in which we do get stuck with, well, Medicaid might not be able to do it. So-and-so might be not be able to do it. But how can we start to build some um, build up some resources using um, philanthropy um, such that we can augment the things that happen in our, quote-unquote, like systems of care? So I was going to ask, you know, um we've discussed a lot of great ideas. How do we start honing? Maybe, maybe we pursue all of them. How do we sort of develop the evidence base that this is where we need to go? This is what we need to do. How do we develop that strategy, including the financing that you just talked about, Karis? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence, of course, for um, uh, the peer support workforce. Um, you know, on the SAMHSA site, for example, there are some uh, infographics that um, actually make it easier, made it a lot easier for people to be able to get a very small lit review, but using an infographic, what is a peer, what do they do, how do they do it, and what's the evidence behind it? Um, and I think that starts to um, help people see where uh, the evidence is. And then, um, we can look at things that are happening, for example, in um, South Africa with the um, Friendship Bench Project, which does have evidence behind it and is being extrapolated here, I believe, to the U.S. in several places. I think there's probably a lot of evidence that's existing. And remember, some things had evidence behind them that we certainly wouldn't do today um, in mental health. Uh, so, for example, um, lobotomy. Like, I'm sorry, that probably had some evidence back in the day, not something we would do today, which means that we always have to continually build the evidence and not sit on the evidence of the day. And so a lot of times when people say, well, that's not really evidence-based, I remind them that's okay, but then we need to build the evidence. I think, you know, technology and integrating technology, we are still building the evidence. Um, and that's going to be really important. And the most important is to um, bring along, co-design, co-lead, collaborate with the people with lived experience and their family members and parents, if it's young children, to help in um, that um, co-design as well. So I think there are lots of ways to do it that can be within systems. Um, they can also be within community and um, um, looking also at other um, um, maybe legislative efforts that are happening like Peers and Medicare Act and a number of other uh, new legislation. I won't get all in deep into that, but I think this is the time. If, if there isn't a time, I mean, I have never seen so much activity around mental health, um, um, legislatively, policy-wise, at the community level, at the state level. Um, I, I haven't seen it 
in a very long time. I would just echo this is a really exciting time. And I was just, um, you know, uh, the American Rescue Plan Act, for example, uh, has um, uh, a lot of funding. Um, it hasn't been fully uh, uh, fleshed out into how that funding is going to be uh, distributed. But I think there's a real opportunity to conduct some more um, community-based participatory research um, and evaluation um, to design um, programs and test the uh, you know effectiveness of different approaches. For example, we're really interested in the role of recovery coaches for parents with substance use disorder and examining the role that these peer recovery coaches can have to support parents. <laughs> she says something, I'm like, oh my God, I really want to bring up something. So I want to make sure that we understand the role of uh, family supporting um, families who have loved ones with lived experience and parents who support other parents who have children or young adults who also have lived experience of mental health and substance use conditions. A lot of times we use the word peers and um, it feels as if the families are excluded, but it is the families that also um, need support along with the person who um, is experiencing a mental health challenge. There's going to be another thing that I think is going to be really critical for us to look at that, uh, and that is the racial inequities. Um, and again, you know, we're seeing a lot of movement addressing racial inequities. Of course, we're seeing um, a lot in the criminal justice world, in the in the police, police reform world, et cetera. And I think, you know, the intersection of, you know, racial equity, lived experience, um, mental illness, mental health, um, and behavioral health is, again, this is a critical, critical time um, to really recognize that intersection and um, bring in, um, you know, again, that lived experience of people of color, because sometimes where and how we need to get stuff may look very, very different than how it's being offered now. Um, when I was, um, you know, first diagnosed and in the public mental health system, I was seeing a lot of people in the audience of recovery um, conferences and things that look like me, but I didn't see a lot of people. Oh, yeah, this is a podcast. I am black, by the way. <laughs> In case you didn't know, you'll see a picture of me. But point being, I didn't see a lot of people who look like me um, up on stage, but I saw a lot of people, uh, you know, people with lived experience in the audience year after year after year. And my belief actually as a black person was, well, recovery must not be for me because we're still sitting here while everybody who doesn't look like me is moving forward and up on stage and doing great work and, you know, has these jobs, Office of Consumer Fair Director, yada, yada, yada. And I'm just kind of sitting here with everybody else. Um, and so um, I think, you know, that was a horrible feeling. And I don't want anybody to ever have that feeling because of the color of skin they walk in, because they may be LGBTQ, 2SI, et cetera, that recovery isn't for them because they're not seeing people like them as examples of what recovery can look like. Um, and um, again, sort of during this time of focus on um, mental health, trauma, um, racial equity, this is such an important time to bring in folks who may not look like you, who may not have the same gender expression as you, et cetera, into these conversations to do that co-design, co-development, and even developing some legislation, some policy, so that, uh, again, um, we can see better outcomes for folks. Well, you know, you guys have talked about a lot of a lot of possible solutions, um, and it's exciting to think that maybe you'll get to work on them with some of our listeners in the future. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Harris. And thank you for listening to this app podcast.